Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On Saturday, May 7th, we gathered at 910 Arts for the 10th installment of our popular reading series, The Draft, in which instructors select students to read from works in progress. This time, we heard from novelist Jessica Austin, short fiction writer Beth Bell, novelist Carmel Mall, and poet Jody Sorensen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Draft 10.0. This is not the ninth or the eleventh time we've done this. This is the tenth time. And um, we're so glad that you could be here for it. I'm Andrea Dupree. I think I know a lot of you. Do I know a lot of you? No? I know Catherine, and I know a few people back there, but I'm the program director at Lighthouse Writers Workshop, and um, we've been around now for almost, we're going on our 15th, 15th year. Amazingly, none of us have aged. It's been, it's miraculous. Um, but it's always a thrill to see all the people out for the draft. And um, a lot of people ask me, how do you guys do the whole draft thing? And generally what we do is we have about 20 workshops going on throughout the year. And they go in little um, sessions. There are three sessions, or are there four sessions? Bill says there are four sessions. Um, he teaches in all of them, and so do I, but I didn't know there were four. Um, so what we do is we start circulating amongst the instructors ideas for topics for the, for the draft that happens toward the end of each session. And this time, unlike what Mike always says, he's been calling it close encounters, and what was the other one? Casual encounters? Yeah. Which sounds kind of dirty. Yeah. It, this one's actually chance encounters. And so then we start brainstorming. Do you have anybody in your workshop who has written something like this who's fabulous? And then we start collecting names and we try to get no two astrological signs alike. And we try to think of whether Mercury's in retrograde or not. And then we come up with some sort of lineup of four different readers, preferably from four different genres, and that's what we've done tonight. It gives you a little sampling of what's being written at Lighthouse, which is exciting. Um, the first reader is going to be introduced by Rebecca Berg, who, for those of you who don't know her, is a brilliant writer herself. She's a generous teacher and friend. Um, she has recently won the Dana Award for the novel. And um, I know. And you can uh, catch her at LitFest. You're teaching writing transitions and writing transitions. Oh, and she's doing the salon, which I'm very excited about, called What's Fiction For? I'm going to be in the front row of that one because that, that sounds provocative and interesting. And she's going to be introducing Jessica Oxton. Osh, uh, 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 <laughs> it rhymes with exhaustion. <laughs> and um, I didn't even have to say that. Rebecca could have fallen on the sword. Anyway, Rebecca Berg. Thanks for doing that for me, Andrea. 
I was nervous enough to ask her, but now I don't have to say it. <laughs> so Jessica <laughs> um, told me that her life is crazy, not interesting, um, which I found interesting. Um, so she's, um, she's a local stage actor and performs improv comedy weekly at the Bovine Metropolis Theater. Um, she recently played Abigail in the Crucible at the Arvada Center, and um, she also teaches what she said were tiny kids at the Denver Center Theater Academy. Um, when I asked her what that meant, she said, well, 3 to 12. <laughs> um, I kind of like that definition. Um, and um, she teaches them, this I thought was amazing, acting, improv, Shakespeare, and stage compat. Um, she's working on a, an MFA in creative writing at the University of Denver, and she'll be reading from her novel in progress, um, which is, I guess, Untitled at the moment, is that? Yeah. Just to clear things up, it's Jessica Austin. Yeah. So so difficult. <laughs> Martin had never known a dead person before. To be honest, he didn't actually know this dead person, but he'd seen her around the halls of their apartment building. Sometimes he'd stand patiently behind her while she was getting her mail from the little mailboxes in the front hall, or he'd look out his window and watch her leaning up against a tree in the sunny courtyard and reading a book, her long golden hair making a soft sheet between her bare shoulders and the rough tree bark. Most weekends, Martin could hear her coming home with drunken friends in the early hours of the morning after the clubs had closed. And then one day, he didn't see her or hear her anymore. Martin missed the dead girl. He had never even known her name, although the label on her mailbox informed him that her first initial was T. But he now found himself glancing across the courtyard at her front door every time he left his apartment or got home from work. Quite often, he'd think he'd glimpsed something golden blonde as he came around the corner to the mailboxes, but it was always a yellow flyer on the community bulletin board or a sun-bleached fall leaf drifting down from one of the sad trees. It was never the girl. As fall moved into winter, and the girl had been the dead girl for almost three months, Martin began sitting beneath her favorite tree in the courtyard, in the cold bear courtyard, under the guise of smoking a cigarette. But his eyes always drifted across the dried-up lawn to her door that never opened. Until one day, it did. <clears throat> Five days before Christmas, Reese Kerrigan found herself with 19 extra dollars and 96 extra cents. She had absolutely no idea how she came up with this surplus. She was very careful with her money these days, putting cash into envelopes carefully labeled with Sharpie marker. Rent, 500. Grocery, 50. Bus pass, 79, etc. Upon returning to work last month, she'd requested that her paychecks be taken off direct deposit and given to her in old-fashioned check form so she could take them to the bank and have cash in hand to pay bills and buy food and all that fun stuff. Reese had stopped trusting her bank and frankly could not afford another accidental overdraft fee. Luckily, her landlord had no problem accepting cash. He preferred it from her, actually, ever since she'd come back. But here it was, the end of December, and Reese's envelopes were all filled with their appropriate amounts of cash. She'd put her $27 of unbudgeted money from her precise salary paycheck into that hateful bank to feed her emaciated checking account, and yet somehow she had an extra 10, 5, 4 ones, and various coinage totaling 96 cents. Reese stared at the money spread out on the chipped surface of her kitchen table and absently ruffled her newly short brown hair. She liked to reach her hand up there to reassure herself that it was still short and different, that the new her hadn't been rejected by her scalp and her hair follicles hadn't forced themselves to regrow into the long, bleached locks that had been so essential to the old Reese. 
The pixie cut was still there and stuck up in pleasant tufts around her face as she furrowed her brow and counted, recounted, and re-recounted the bills and the envelopes. The smart thing to do, Reese knew perfectly well, would be to feed this money straight to the bank, tuck it away for a rainy day, but at this moment she felt she deserved something in her stomach that didn't come in freeze-dried form. It had been a tough month. All right, kitchen, she informed the dingy white walls around her. You are so about to get cooked in. Don't go anywhere, I shall return. Reese used to talk to the cat, but since it had gone missing, she had taken to speaking to the small rooms of her apartment. Her bathroom in particular was a very good listener. The grocery store was only six blocks away, but Reese bundled up for the walk as if she was preparing to be on a documentary film crew shooting penguins for a month in Antarctica, topping the whole ensemble off with an oddly shaped burgundy cap that had been her first completed knitting project from while she was away. She pulled the door shut and firmly locked it, longing for the complicated dance routine she used to do with the cat to prevent him from running outside, waved her mitten hand at her car parked forlornly in its covered space, and set off into the snowy evening. When she arrived at the Safeway, the first thing she saw inside the door was a display of small evergreen trees. Christmas in a planter, regularly $19.99, $15.99 with your club card. Reese had both $15.99 and a club card. She wouldn't be able to buy any food, but she was a terrible cook anyway. Something about the little mountain of Christmas bushes with their soft branches and tacky sprigs of plastic holly tucked into the sides of the spray-gilded pot reminded her of home which was strange because Reese's family had always put up artificial trees and her house had never smelled like pine or been filled with fallen dried needles. But there was something homey about them just the same. Reese stuck her hand in her pocket and felt her cash. She took about five steps past the display toward the main food-filled store and then looked back. The trees were adorable and inviting even from her new angle. Oh, screw it. She grabbed the cutest, littlest tree and hoisted it up. I want a Christmas tree. She had just enough money left to buy back an extra pa- buy an extra packet of ramen noodles. The snow was falling harder as Martin piloted his gray Subaru the last few blocks from the liquor store to his apartment building. Although the car had four-wheel drive, Martin kept his speed low and his hands firmly on the wheel. He wouldn't be like the other assholes on the road who seemed to think that just because they were driving an SUV, they could treat the snowy streets like they were the Autobahn or something. Hands at 10 and 2, speed low. Keep at least one car length away from the car ahead of me for every 10 miles per hour that I'm driving. If I slide, I need to make sure I turn into the slide. Basic driving lessons from his high school driver's ed teacher, Mr. Ellington, ran through Martin's brain as he stared through the windshield at the thick field of snowflakes. They parted around the car and created an optical illusion, as if the Subaru wasn't driving down a street at all, but flying through some sort of star-filled tunnel, a wormhole through space. In fact, if Martin sort of unfocused his eyes, the effect was a little like the Millennium Falcon jumping into hyperspace. No, it was exactly like the hyperspace jump. He was suddenly Han freaking solo, and the cat hair-covered jacket on the seat next to him was Chewbacca. He pushed down harder on the gas pedal, and the little gray car accelerated almost up to the speed limit. Han Solo didn't pay attention to unsafe driving conditions. Hell no, that guy spat in the face of extreme weather. Martin kept his eyes unfocused as he sailed through the hyperspace jump. Okay, Chewie, he said with a chin nod to the hairy jacket as a dark object loomed small in the Subaru's windshield. We're about to come up on Alderaan. 
except it wasn't Alderaan or a moon or even a space station. It was a small young woman gingerly stepping her way across the snowy intersection, and the thing, the oversized, bulky, pokey-looking thing that she was lugging in her small arms completely blocked her view of the oncoming car. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Martin dropped all vestiges of fifth space pirate bravado and began shrieking as he slammed on the brakes and started an icy slide right toward the girl in the road. Into the slide, into the slide, into the slide, his mental driving instructor reminded him as the world slowed down and the girl's dark silhouette loomed dangerously close. Unfortunately, Martin had no idea which way into a slide actually was. Point the car in the direction he was going? Point it the other way? What the hell did into a slide actually mean? The entire phrase was subjective, right? His panicked mind cursed Mr. Ellington. Martin closed his eyes, jerked the wheel to the right, and hoped for the best. A dull thud sounded across his hood as the car finally came to a stop. Oh my god, I hit her. I killed that girl. Martin forced himself to open his eyes and face the consequences. But instead of looking at great crimson splashes of blood or bits of brain, he found himself looking through a curtain of evergreen boughs as if he'd crash-landed on the forest moon of Endor. The girl was standing just outside his driver's side window, her pale face and flushed cheeks peeking out from beneath a silly-looking knit cap. Her wide brown eyes locked with Martin's for a brief moment before she tumbled backward into the thick drifts of snow that had become the intersection of 44th Avenue and Elliott Street. Martin yanked the emergency brake, vowing never again to ignore any more of Mr. Ellington's teachings, jumped out of the car and rushed to the snow angel. He tried to kneel heroically by her side, but that was much harder to do than he thought as the girl kept rolling from side to side, snorting with laughter. I'm sorry, she gasped. I'm sorry, but... But... I think you just ran over my Christmas tree. The girl dissolved into nonsensical giggle snorts, and Martin leaned back on his heels, trying to make sense of the situation. A small evergreen bush in a cheap plastic plot was dashed across his windshield. The bush's owner was writhing hysterically in the middle of the snowy road, and Martin himself had spilled Mountain Dew, or what he desperately hoped was Mountain Dew, across the front of his pants. Come on, he said to the girl, you need to get out of the road. I'm sorry, I can't yet. I just can't. Another wave of laughter swallowed the girl's words. Martin held out a hand. Seriously, you need to get out of the road. You could get hit. What, again? Come on, this is serious. Martin was starting to get angry at this girl's completely inappropriate reaction to a vehicular near tragedy. Don't just sit in the middle of an icy road. Are you insane or something? Her laughter snapped off, and she pulled herself out of the snow, ignoring Martin's outstretched hand. Her eyes stared into his for a brief second, the cold expression behind them turning the tears that had so recently been laughter into something else entirely. Anger? Hurt? Shame? Martin had never seen that particular look before, but she had ducked her head down before he could quite figure it out. Thanks. So who busted up the wave? I saw the wave starting. Oh, Jeanette, I understand. When you hear a cautionary tale like that about being a little reckless and Han Solo, yeah, you might not, you might not do the wave. Um, thank you so much, Jessica Austin. Oh my God, thank you. Um, is Jody here? Jody. Okay, Jody's here. Cool. Um, the next person who's going to get up here and introduce someone is David Rothman, who's an eccentric poet, 
with encyclopedic knowledge. Um, he's got a new book coming out. When's it coming out? Uh, a couple years. In a couple years. <laughs> From Red Hen Press, right? Yes. You're not, he, he's not very good at promoting his book that's coming out in a couple years. Go big or stay home. The last part was mine. Um, he's also the only poet I know who has a poem inscribed on his telemark skis. I mean, a, 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 what would you say, an aphorism? Uh, something. The, he has a sentence. He has a sentence. Um, and he is going to be introducing Ms. Jody Sorensen. David J. Rothman. The, the sentence in, the, the book is called Go Big and Red Hen is a great press but they're a little bit they're a little bit confused at times I suppose and uh, the sentence is the poetic function projects the principle of equivalence from the axis of selection into the axis of combination and that is on my skis it's Roman Jakobson's closing statement on poetics at the 1957 Indiana University on, Conference on Stylistics so but we'll take that we'll talk about that another time it's really a great pleasure to introduce Jody Sorensen um, Jody has had a very interesting life um, she used to write young adult fiction in fact she's published five young adult uh, novels in the 1980s and she's worked as an, an attorney and both a clinical and a school psychologist so if any of you you know, have any problems you want to talk about with her. I don't know if she's still taking clients or not, but I was thinking of doing a trade maybe myself on, uh, for class for counseling. Um, she says that through her, her son's interest in music, she became interested in poetry a few years ago because um, he took a poetry class in college, and in her words, she then realized that the entire world of contemporary poetry was a black hole in her brain. <laughs> Which is, uh, it's not a black hole anymore, I don't think, because um, she's been writing extraordinarily great stuff in, in the several classes she's taken with me. She came uh, into, she started coming to my classes um, a couple of months ago, maybe earlier, at the beginning of this year, I guess. And, um, you know, I'd say, so go home and, you know, write a triolet this weekend. And Jody would come back with three triolets that basically sketched out the, a novel. <laughs> she has a very, very strong, which is a very hard thing to do, to write narrative triolets, let me tell you. She has an extraordinary narrative um, sense. Uh, and she often writes about her, her uh, time growing up in North Dakota. North Dakota, and describes it uh, beautifully. In fact, in some ways, it reminds me of the great work of uh, Pete Fairchild, who I think is one of the best living American poets, who writes so powerfully about the High Plains, although usually about Kansas, a little bit further south. So uh, it's really a great uh, pleasure to welcome Jody. Her, her craft and her skill have been improving from week to week, and that very powerful narrative drive is very, very distinctive. And... Uh, I'm really honored to have her in my classes. So, thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read two poems um, about chance encounters that I've had. The first is called My Robin on the Ground, Wednesday. I found a robin's egg this afternoon 
mid-April, Holy Week, no nest around, nor leaves up in the trees, just buds still in cocoon. I found a robin's egg this afternoon. I left it on my neighbor's grass but came back soon. Was it real or Easter candy lying on the ground? I found a robin's egg this afternoon, mid-April, Holy Week, no nest around. Monday, Thursday. The robin's egg has got a pecked-out hole. I love its blue and wash its yolk-filled insides clean. Across my yard, a robin hops as if without a soul. The robin's egg has got a pecked-out hole. I watch and watch and finally say, I bet that egg's your goal. She doesn't sing and hops and hops across my yard's dark, d- deep green. The robin's egg has got a pecked-out hole. I love its blue and wash its yolk-filled insides clean. Good Friday. I saw my robin resting next to my front fence on soil that's moist and wormy at the base of the tall oak tree. It was Good Friday's noon to three and I was tense. I saw my robin resting next to my front fence. As I approached, it bounced, then wobbled. Its left wing had no flying sense. Must I become a killer to set my robin free? I saw my robin resting next to my front fence on soil that's moist and wormy at the base of the tall oak tree. Thank you. And the second is called Time Warp, Tuttle, North Dakota, September 4, 2010. Wide dirt streets, no one is here. Tires crunch Saturday noon. Summer heat swishes the maples. Dense green, no fall red to be seen. Car windows down for the crunch and the sound of no one around. Gas station closed, grain elevator waiting. How quiet this summer chooses to leave. Black-lettered sign on the whitewashed wood building. Save this building. Tuttle Public Office, USPO, WPA, 1938. Long time ago, I sat on the postmistress's lap. Now I am old, driving slow, steady and safe. My mother's final Ford, a four-door sedan. But honest to God, I feel small-boned, crouched skinny inside a tin tub. Three sets of elbows, knees there with me. Couldn't God please take my sisters and at least put them back in their cribs? Grandma's at the kitchen pump for more water. The iron is hot, ready to press, and we're listening to Saturday night radio. So fine, the glow in the night of the cobalt blue kerosene stove to town our men and our women to dance, drink, and play pool. Dance hall, though weathered, still stands to my right. Me, I'm floating my way through this small town reality lodged in a different century where I'm living the good life, a Patty Page radio bath. 
Shaking off ghosts, I wait at the stop sign. I think this is for no other reason at all. And then watch a 57 Chevy slide gracefully by. I once owned a 56 model, two shades of green. But this is an oh-so-to-die-for, sun-faded red, convertible. Top glided all the way down. I swallow, stare south, totally unable, to lift my foot up off of the brake, pressed down on the gas. The car cruises back, taking its time. The occupants, two teens, a boy and a girl, and a pink chiffon-scarfed woman about my age, hair and a done-upright Saturday do. They smile broadly and wave as they pass, headed east. Then they're gone, and I look straight ahead at the hot, quiet dirt road where I am to go, and everything reaches and takes my breath, me, and my heart so vastly away. I am lost, and I'm found, one with this world and this day. Thank you. Were those both French form poems, or the first one was in form, wasn't it? Which is why I will never write a triolet, because you just did such a wonderful job. Um, thank you for that. And David, you were right. Um, the next person, are you guys all okay? Do we need to stand or anything? I know you're still hot. I, I see the fans. Um, we'll just keep going. Okay. Um, the next person ended up in my class as a result of a bit of an intervention. Um, I got a note from Rebecca Berg, who had, had taught this person in the intro to short story class, and said, um, I'm actually forcing her to move into the advanced short story class. Uh, she Don't let her get out of this, because she needs to be in there. Um, and then I saw her first story and read it, and completely forgot I was reading a manuscript. I mean, and that's what you're looking for, I think, in fiction and in literature in general, is to be transported somewhere and feel like you're in good hands. And um, we have one kind of very, very tough sell in the workshop, a young gentleman who um, he, even he had to tip his hat to this, this writer. I found out a little bit about her that she... Um, she studied journalism in college and decided it was a bit confrontational for her taste, which I understand. And now, aren't you looking like a genius getting out when you could? Um, and so she's tried very many different things in her life. I, she currently works very cryptically. She told me she works with plants. Um, and it's just a, a joy and a pleasure to have her in the workshop, Beth Bell. Hi, everyone. This um, short story is called Soft Road. And this is my first time reading, so I have to... You're already... Breathe. <laughs> Killing it. Okay, Soft Road. There are many things I would have told Liddy. I would have told her that people aren't born with green thumbs, that green thumbs are cultivated like orchids, like daughters. I am not, though, Liddy's mother, 
Her mother was killed in a car crash on a back, on a back road in Wyoming six months ago. It took them a week to find her. She was out there in the wind, all alone and dying. I can only imagine. Perhaps that was the problem, me imagining other people's loss and loneliness. Liddy's father, Cole, called me sanctimonious. At the time, the word felt like a knife in my throat, but I've been thinking about it, and I've turned the word over and over in my mind, and have come to the conclusion that he's thought this out rather thoroughly, how he'll raise Liddy on his own, with equal parts humility, and go fuck yourself. Cole is a truck driver, a diesel cowboy. He's been chewing Nicorette since I met him eight years ago. Every week, he picks up tropical plants in San Diego and runs them through Colorado and up into Cheyenne, where he still keeps a home. He makes it a point to tell a person that he used to haul gravel for roadbeds, but Wyoming being a right-to-work state was edged out by younger, cheaper drivers. He misses important work, as he calls it, but is grateful for work nonetheless. All the banks have folded, but I'm still dropping a trailer full of plants each week, he said recently. Who would have thought? Plants. Then he spat his gum over my fence, as if to get the thought out of his head. I told him how my little Denver greenhouse and many others nearby actually began in the Great Depression, growing carnations, because people still wanted to give each other thoughtful, albeit cheap, gifts. I am a one-woman business. I create plantscapes in the lobbies of office buildings. My philosophy is that plants are a subtle but elemental aesthetic. People don't notice them when they are there, but when they're gone, they miss the oxygen, the coolness of the air around a planter of broadleaf aglaonemas. This is another thing I would have told Liddy, to develop an awareness for those spaces that are too often overlooked. They came on Wednesdays, and Liddy would walk the rows of my greenhouse and pick out a plant for herself, until the little bracelet, which is where Cole drew the line, I gave her nothing but plants. First, an African violet, because purple was her mother's favorite color. The next week, she found the Hoyas, and beneath them, in the gravel, I found a smattering of their pink wax flowers. Liddy, I said, trying to sound stern, but her mischief delighted me. Why are you picking all the blooms? They feel so fake, she said, rubbing the plasticky stars between her fingers, and it's ooze. It feels like tire sealant. That Hoya was swinging from the rearview mirror the last time Liddy and Cole pulled out of my lot. She loved plants, particularly the strange ones. We began a collection of air plants, those odd little nests of squiggles that need no water, just a spot on a piece of driftwood. Some shot out flowers like tiny red flames, and others were cartoonish pom-poms like the ends of Dr. Seuss tales. I ordered rarities, especially for her, and each week we glued another to the piece of wood that we laid on the dash so that Lydia had something else to count besides mileage posts. I would have taught her how to tell, by sight alone, whether a drooping philodendron was too dry or drowning in its roots. There were so many things I wanted to share with her because I thought I saw myself in her. But now I realize that I just wanted to find myself in her, and it was so heartbreaking. A girl becoming a woman with no one to talk to about it except her father. So I gave her a bracelet for her 13th birthday, a plain-looking turquoise bracelet with a few pewter charms, a heart, a dragonfly, a flower, because turquoise represents friendship. And because I had never seen her wear a piece of jewelry, never seen her try for pretty, though she very much was. 
that he held out a wrist like she thought maybe a model would. She jingled the charms, held them up to the sunlight as if they might sparkle like diamonds. Then she said, surprisingly softly, My mother would have liked you a lot. I looked at Cole, maybe for a nod, but I could see that deep down he was wincing. The corners of his eyes were quivering ever so slightly. Then he walked off to his cab. When he was out of earshot, I asked why. I suddenly needed to know whether her mother would have approved of me or not. Why what? Lydia asked back, still still admiring her bracelet in the sunlight. Why would your mother have liked me? Liddy thought for a moment, and, there, and then her tone flipped from sentimental to spiteful. She would have liked you because she was independent too. Like Daddy says, only Mommy wasn't so lost. Did I think Liddy was drowning? Is that what I thought I saw? Did I think I was the only one who could see this? Over the past month, Liddy had begun to wear drab gray sweatshirts that were baggy enough for a teenage boy in the defensive line and jeans so long, the hems dragged beneath her sarcastically pink sneakers. There was no longer a discernible partner long once free-flowing hair. Most of it slopped to the left, leaving the right tangled from hours spent against the window, watching brown deserts become red deserts, become white mountains that were melting down into spring. What I had noticed most, though, was that she had begun to hate with an alarming casualness. They pulled into my lot at 8.30 that last morning. Liddy hopped out of the cab and gave me a hug. She had been a hugger from day one, and I always thought it was sincere. Cole came around the other side, patted me on the back, and said, I hope you're feeling strong today. I know, I said, rubbing my hands together in excitement. It's my biggest job yet. I had won the bid for the first health building downtown. It was a $15,000 installation and maintenance contract, a coup for me. That job alone would have kept me in business for six months. Cole swung open the doors of his trailer and hopped inside the shell. He slid boxes out to Liddy and I, as Liddy told me about a random UPS man at their first stop who had trouble backing into the loading dock. He honked and yelled, get out of the way. And I was like, I'm not in the way. I'm nowhere in the way. I'm just sitting here on the wall eating my egg biscuit. Kel bellowed from inside the trailer. You were in his blind spot, darling. He couldn't see you. Well, Liddy said, I hate those freaking guys in their stupid shorts. They're not real drivers. We unloaded 12 10-inch peace lilies, 18 four-foot snake plants, and a dozen cases of pothos. Strapped to the side of the trailer was the centerpiece of my design, a 25-gallon rafis palm packed in lava rock. Liddy, though, would not drop the UPS man. I mean, what an a-hole, she whispered, but not necessarily for me to hear. She just whispered it as if the anger was settling in. Liddy, her father yelled. You did not hear that, she said. I didn't need to, Cole shot back. Now start taking those boxes inside. Cole began to untether the palm, with each strap, each buckle hitting the steel floor. My realization grew. This palm was taller than I expected. I asked Cole, Do you ever think that she's angry at her mother for dying? I get it, he said, I do. I'm with her 500 miles a day. I went on. I'd hate for her to get stuck in anger, particularly at her age. Cole shimmied the palm down the length of the trailer. I was growing concerned that even he couldn't lift it. And so, 
And so, he said, you think that giving her things will unstick her? Plants, I said with a lilt in my voice. The bracelet, he said. He stood up in the mouth of the trailer, put his cowboy boot on the enormous black pot, and glared at me. It was nothing. I wished that he would have stopped looking at me because it hurt, like he was twisting my arm behind my back. A trinket. Just to let her know that I'm here. And her mother, who should be giving her such things, is not. Cole jumped off the trailer and said, Now how do you plan on moving this monster by yourself? I wrapped my arms around the nursery pot and pulled. I'm sorry, I didn't think of it that way. Cole was not moving to help. It's just that, Jesus, Cole, I was so embarrassed at that age. I dreaded becoming a woman as much as I dreaded being a kid for one more day. And she's like that, too. I can tell. Who's she going to talk to? Well, Susan, Cole said in a very firm and final tone, while I do appreciate your concern, however sanctimonious, I don't need a woman like you telling me how to raise my daughter. And then I felt my back lock and a spasm grind up my spine. I couldn't move, and the pain must have flared up in my face. Cole quickly relieved me of the palm and pulled it the rest of the way out of the trailer. Liddy came out of the greenhouse and saw the two of us there, me on my hands and knees in the gravel, and Cole squatting in front of me, asking me if there was anything he could do. Is there anyone I can call? I shook my head. Not really. I could tell that Cole was trying to think of something helpful to say. Something that would turn the situation around. And in him, I saw how quickly empathy breaks down into pity. I told him where to find my Vicodin, and as he walked into my greenhouse, where I knew he wouldn't answer, I whined, What do you mean, a woman like me, anyway? Liddy sat down in front of me and crossed her legs Indian style. She brushed my hair back behind my ear, clumsily, like it was her first time comforting another. Are you going to be okay, she asked. I said I would, eventually. Then she put her elbows on her knees and her pretty little face in her hands. She was not wearing the friendship, ba- friendship bracelet. I asked her what had happened to it. She took a deep breath and seemed to hold it in. She mumbled through her fingers. I gave it to my mother. I put it on her grave. Then she burst and started to cry. What about me? Am I going to be okay? I would have told her to be strong, but who was I, hunched over the way I was in the gravel, nearly puking with pain? I had no advice for her, no wisdom. Liddy, I said, look at me. I need you to look at me right now. She did, and in her I saw so much of her father, a road-worn person, but a person who could not try as she might lose herself, no matter how many miles. You are absolutely going to be okay. For the next four months... I was in a back brace. I couldn't lift. I couldn't bend. I couldn't dig in the dirt. And so I lost the first health job in my greenhouse. They called me once. Liddy chatting, Cole driving next to her. I could hear the wind of the road just past his voice as he said, Ask her why she doesn't just grow carnations. Carnations aren't so heavy. I heard that, I said. Very funny. But the fact of the matter is, no one around here grows carnations anymore. It's cheaper to import them from South America. I didn't tell her that. I didn't, I didn't want to be the one to tell her that there are some forces with which you just can't compete.
do I get any credit for the fact that she's awesome? Um, good job. You did a great job. Um, last but not least, we didn't really talk about the pronunciation of her last name, so I'm going to let Bill, I learned from the first experience, I'm going to let Bill um, introduce this next person. Those of you who don't know William Haywood Henderson, he's one of the finest novelists we have in our time. Um, his Augusta Locke is an award-winning novel, his most recent, and he's also working on The Rift Valley. Did I get it right? Which I'm hoping is going to be done this summer, if I have anything to say about it. And as you'll see for yourself, he's got impeccable fashion sense. William Haywood Henderson. Thank you. Let me just do a little turn. Um, I'm going to introduce Carmel Mall. Is that right? <laughs> For years I've been mispronouncing her name. Um, she showed up a couple years ago um, from the Northern Wastes. She drives all the way down from Fort Collins every week. Um, she started in the intermediate novel, um, worked her way up to the advanced, has been in the master class, um, and is writing this young adult novel, the kind of young adult novel where if you bought it for your kid, you'd probably steal it from your kid and hold it, hold it very close. It's a very beautiful story. It has a young knight. It has a dragon. Every story has to have a dragon. And I think her most beautiful... Um, um, I, I, her most beautiful idea in the book is the Langsphere, which are woods, wood spirits, which are just the most beautiful characters you can imagine. Um, it's a very, very good story. Um, so I hope you um, enjoy it. Her name is Carmel Mall. One minute the knight and dragon were whirling under the desert stars with Master Rumi, singing praises at the top of their lungs, and the next the sand beneath their feet was sliding downwards, the stars spinning and bursting upwards like sparks from a roaring fire. Sir Michael felt himself still in the dance, whirling with hands and face lifted to heaven, eyes filled with the desert sky, but he was falling, caught in the sands around the funnel of a great hourglass spinning downward, downward. The master seemed not to notice their descent. His eyes were closed in the rapture of the dance of his song. The knight became aware at the same moment as Ember did, the dragon's eyes opening wide in a sudden flash of red. He strained to lift his wings, but it was already too late. The knight and dragon swam in vain against the swirling currents of sand. Sir Michael covered his face, struggling for breath between cupped hands. He felt himself crushed, separated from his friend, from the master, and buried beneath the weight of an ocean of sand, the desert, the mountains, the stars and the ether burying him, pounding him like grain between stones. He had survived childhood illness and the fire that decimated the village of Norberg, cheated death on the journey to London, storms at sea, and on the battlefields of Acre, but death was patient. And now when he celebrated the fulfillment of his duty to God and his liege and was finally contemplating his victorious return home, he found only death waiting for him. Death would swallow him whole, grind him in its gullet, and he would meet his heavenly father before he could avenge his earthly father. The sand pressed heavier, a silent tomb. 
He fought to take breath into his lungs, but none came. Soon he would take his first steps toward the gates of Pearl. Would the father's gaze be one of approval? He had served with all his heart, but he was only a boy. He wasn't ready. There was no priest to intercede on his behalf, no time to appeal to the saints. Even as his body succumbed, his mind formed the words, Please, dear Lord, I need more time. And then, as if the lowly knight's prayer had been answered, Master Rumi's voice filtered into the silent darkness. Deep, rumbling words resonated like the bass strings of a vena, a pulsing heartbeat of song, of life. Cool air caressed his face, and Sir Michael gasped, inhaled, and opened his eyes just as he hit solid ground. His, he landed on his hands and knees in a thick bed of dry leaves and moss, twigs and pine needles. Amber landed beside him in a heap, twitching sand from his scales. Sand crusted Sir Michael's face, and hair fell into his eyes. Sand grated beneath his male hauberk and leggings, filling his leather gloves and shoes. They were alive. The knight and dragon scrambled to their feet and found themselves in a dark forest. A nearly full moon and hazy stars shone weakly between the silhouetted boughs above them. The air was still, and Rumi's deep baritone thrummed faintly through the trees. They stepped off the worn path, following the master's voice through the underbrush into the deeper shadows, crossed a narrow brook trickling beneath overhanging tufts of moss and ferns, and followed the winding stream through rocky outcroppings. Through the trees, a pale, wavering light came into view. Drawing closer, the knight could make out the ghostly white of the master's beard and the peculiar camel's hump headdress representing the tombstone with its ashen sash of mourning. The master's eyes were still closed, and it seemed as if he were unaware of their change in location. His arms outstretched, the master whirled around and around, one hand turned toward heaven, the other toward earth. The body is a device to calculate the astronomy of the spirit, he sang. Look through that astrolabe and become oceanic. As Master Rumi turned, his fur-lined cape spread open to reveal a living constellation. Stars circled within the old man's breast, rotating around a larger, brighter star at the center. Sir Michael knew with a certainty that terrified him that they were looking at the master's heart. He stood paralyzed next to Ember, watching, listening to the words he did not understand, and waiting, waiting. His heart crashed in his ears like cymbals to the master's song, and he waited. He and the dragon were spellbound, waiting for what? Around and around the master world. And then without slowing his rotation, the old man opened his eyes and smiled. The stars within grew brighter, red and silver, blue and green, as the master began to fade, his voice growing soft and distant, until all Sir Michael could see was the bright star of the master's heart lifting through the branches into the night sky. And then they were alone in the dark forest. As if suddenly released from a spell, Sir Michael lurched forward and caught a low branch. Master! Ember hissed at the night. Shh! His voice was a thin reed. His talons grasped at hard earth and pine needles. His friend was right. They did not know where they were or who might hear them. The knight took a halting breath and turned to take in their surroundings. The air was heavy with the scent of evergreens. The moon's pale light glistened on the bowed heads of tall hemlocks. Wild rhododendrons spread waxy leaves like fingers under stacked blossoms of barely discernible colors. 
faint shadow speckled and stabbed across a well-worn trail. He supposed it must lead to a nearby village, but he could see no other sign of civilization. The knight and dragon stood back to back, a formation that had served them well in previous battles. Sir Michael's hand hovered over Cragsphere's hilt, his eyes searching the dappled darkness of the forest. Where are we, he asked in a whisper. Ember lifted his snout and breathed the air in. I taste the salt of the ocean. He stretched to his full height, pushing his thick tail against the knight's heels. What has become of Master Rumi? Sir Michael strained to see in the dim light. "'Twas almost as if he burst into flames. Nay, twas not flames, said the dragon. The old man has tricked us. Ember's head twisted on his long neck, his voice a gravelly hiss. A damnable wizard. Lord, help us, such a wizard, said the knight, looking again to where Master Rumi's star had disappeared. And we've lost shadow. The great white charger had carried his father into battle and been retired when Sir Michael was just five years old. He had grown up on the horse's back. And after he left Norberg and took up arms for Prince Edward, the stallion had borne Sir Michael into battle without hesitation. Now, through his own ignorance, he had lost shadow, the only living connection he had to his father. Betrayal. The word came out involuntarily. The knight hadn't intended to say it out loud. He was cert- wasn't certain whether it applied more to Master Rumi or himself. I of the worst kind, said the dragon. Ember's dark tongue flickered over Sir Michael's shoulder. It couldn't have been more than two or three months since they fought together in the Battle of Acre, and though Sir Michael was certain the dragon had outweighed him then, his head had not reached past the knight's shoulder blades. Surely his friend's growth was increasing. The spheres of Ember's eyes glowed red, his breath smelled of sulfur as a battle fire smoldered in his belly. Who's there? A voice came from overhead and the dragon vanished. Sir Michael looked up behind him to find a dark shape at the top of the tree that he hadn't noticed before, some type of watchman's post faintly lit from within. From an unglazed window, a round head protruded. The knight threw himself under the foliage and crept forward, peering up through the branches. Another head appeared. What do you see? A second voice asked. They sounded like young boys, probably younger than himself. But were they alone? Why were they guarding this wood, and who would they notify of the knight's presence? I thought I heard voices. Something moved under the tree, probably a raccoon. Could be terrorist. I'm raising the alert to orange. The words were the king's English, but the accent was unfamiliar. Sir Michael kept low, stepping lightly across the layered pine needles. He edged around the tree trunk into the deeper shadow and pulled the hood of his mill hauberk over his head, sand sliding down the back of his neck. A dragon landed above him, a branch sagging and scraping against the knight's face. Ember, did you see them? he asked. Aye, tis just the two lads. One of the heads disappeared into the shelter and then re-emerged, aiming a narrow beam of light so bright it outshone the full face of the moon. The torch flashed along the forest floor, illuminating ferns, rocks, leaves, and blossoms in bursts of light. The night froze. What kind of bewitchment was this? More wizards, hissed Ember. Wizards. The very words sent a chill through his limbs. If Sir Michael knew anything about magic, it was the futility of resisting. He had been fortunate in his previous encounters with the Langsphere that there had been some truth to the family legends. Sir Michael had heard the tales each Michaelmas when his father would lay the heavy sword across his lap 
and tell the tale of Cragsphere, forged under the mountains by the fairy king. His ancestor, Sir John, had proved his merit, saved the fairy princess, and won the sword. It was a cherished tale of daring and adventure, and, until Lord William's death, the only time Sir Michael had been granted the privilege of holding his father's sword. Indeed, the honor had so outshone the annual storytelling that Sir Michael had never considered whether there could be any truth to the fairy tale. It wasn't until Sir Michael had set forth from Norberg and first encountered the ethereal Langsphere that he began to understand the significance of the engravings on the sheath, the ornately jeweled tree beside the waters of Norofir. Yes, it had been futile to resist then, straining to lift Cragsphere to defend against the very princess whose father had forged the sword in the fires of Mount Kragrenheit, who led Sir Michael to the gleaming water's edge to hear the song of a dragon's egg. His family had forgotten the true meaning of the legend, but the Langspear had not. The magic they face now was of a different nature, both darker and strangely brighter. The magic of Master Rumi commanded the very earth and stars. Yes, the most sensible course of action would be to flee into the forest while they still had the chance of escape. But where were they? Why had they been deceived, taken from the desert? Their only hope of finding answers was in surprising these two young wizard guards. You looked like you wanted to say more. No? Thank you so much. I would totally steal that from my kids. I, in fact, hide a lot of their books from them until I'm done. And um, that's a great one. Thank you for that. Do you want to take some of the credit? He wants to take all the credit. And I also want to thank all the members of Lighthouse, um, without whom we would not be able to do events like this. So thank you all, and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.